Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog, All Together, at altogether.swe.org. Looking for more information and data on women in engineering? Head over to research.swe.org and review the groundbreaking research that SWE has been conducting. SWE's research efforts include reporting on women of color in engineering and how community colleges may play a role in getting more women to graduate with engineering degrees. You can also check out the annual SWE Literature Review in SWE Magazine's State of Women in Engineering issue. Hi, I'm Cindy Hoover, Fiscal Year 20 President of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. Today, I'm joined by one of our WE19 Mega Session speakers, Joan Williams. Joan is a distinguished law professor and founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at University of California, Hastings College of the Law. Joan has authored 11 books and over 90 academic articles and book chapters and ranks among the top 10 scholars in her field. She has played a central role in reshaping the debates over women, work, and unconscious bias over the past quarter century and is widely known for her bias interrupters, a new evidence-based metrics-driven approach to eradicating implicit bias. Today, she's here to talk to us about her research in bias patterns and how we can navigate those patterns in our own lives and careers. Thanks for joining us today, Joan. Delighted to be here, Cindy. Thanks for the invitation. So let's go ahead and get started, Joan. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what shaped your career path, and what sparked your interest in the very specific and very important field of gender bias research? Well, I started out, I always say I was an environmental lawyer who had a baby. Um, I started out doing environmental law. Uh, that's what actually I went to law school for. And then um, to simplify somewhat, when I had my first child, I um, was really taken aback at how challenging it was to be a mom, totally delightful, but really tra- challenging, and how ill-prepared I had been for it and how the world was kind of set up so that they defined the ideal worker as someone with no time, uh, who took no time off for childbearing or childbearing, and that no longer defined me. So I started to um, think, realized that my life was really being shaped by gender norms and gender expectations. And as part of um, trying to change that and make things better for people who came after me, I got um, uh, tons of grant money. And one of the things I did with the grant money was assembled um, a series of working groups that brought together social psychologists and lawyers first to document bias against mothers, and which produced a, a, one of the four patterns of, of gender bias, as we now know, is documented as a result of that work. But I also because I began to hang out with these social psychologists, began to read a lot of social psychology. And I realized that the kinds of things that had shaped my career quite apart from motherhood were in fact glass ceiling bias that was just triggered by being um, an accomplished woman. 
And so um, I began to focus on gender because I realized that it had been incredibly important in determining the whole course of my life. So that's kind of the short version of why I began to focus on gender bias. And then I started actually giving a, a speech called The Four Patterns of Gender Bias on university campuses. And um, they um, found that people immediately recognized the patterns that I was talking about. But they got really depressed because I wasn't giving them any um, strategies for navigating through these biases. So I interviewed a whole bunch of really, really accomplished and politically savvy women. And with my daughter, Rachel Dempsey, wrote an advice book called What Works for Women at Work, which just gathered these very savvy women's strategies for navigating successfully through subtle gender bias. Well, I will have to definitely check out that book, as will many of our readers, because I think we can definitely identify with those patterns. Um, so you've you've been involved in two influential studies that might be of particular interest to our audience of engineers and technologists. Can you tell us a bit more about those studies? I can. Both of them start out from the four patterns of gender bias that I developed for what works for women at work. Um, the first, um, well, just to introduce those four, four patterns, the first pattern I call prove it again, and that's that some groups have to prove themselves more than others, so that women often find themselves having to prove themselves over and over again and give far more evidence of competence than men do in order to be seen as equally competent. The second pattern I call the tightrope, and that's that women often find themselves walking a tightrope between being seen as too masculine and so unlikable, or too feminine and so not effective or not competent. The third pattern I already introduced, the maternal wall, the gender bias that's triggered by motherhood. And the fourth pattern is the tug of war, when gender bias against women feels conflicts among women. So once I had those four patterns, I began to wonder about how the experience of gender bias differs by race. And so I wrote a report on women science professors um, called Double Jeopardy, Gender Bias Against Women in STEM, which I co-authored with Kathy Phillips and Erica Hall. And we found really interesting patterns. For example, that tightrope that all women walk is uh, narrower for women of Asian descent in the United States who find themselves more, who are more likely to report pressure to behave in feminine ways and more likely to report pushback if they don't than any other group of women. Um, and if you ask women whether women in their environments um, support each other, about two thirds of women in general say yes, but a much uh, lower, um, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. It's about 75% uh, of women in general say yes, but only 58% of African-American women science professors said yes. So um, that actually, that report um, made a big splash. The last time I looked, it had 
um, over 87,000 shares on social media and just got a lot of attention. And in fact, as a result of that, we just literally today launched a study of the experience of women of color in um, computing. So if you are a, a woman in computing, whether actually you're a white woman or women of color, um, definitely look out for our survey and email if you can't meet me if you can't find it. Uh, I'm at Williams at American. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm at Williams at UC Hastings. Edu. Williams at UC Hastings. Edu. And then more recently, we've done two reports, one on engineers in India and one on engineers in the United States. The US one is called Climate Control, Gender and Racial Bias in Engineering. And that explores the parallels and divergences um, among engineers in the experience of gender bias and the experience of um, racial bias really, really interesting and important patterns there. That's fantastic. So I know you've, you've actually developed some tools for advancing and retaining women in STEM. What, what are those tools and, and how do they work? Um, well, the most important set is at www.biasinterrupters.org. Um, and those, the bias interrupters tools are um, we have separate paths, one for um, anyone who, who's a manager, no matter how many people you manage, ways that you can um, just by introducing a few tweaks, make the workplace better for um, people around you. And the tweaks that are going to help women advance and level the playing field for women will also help um, that level the playing field for people of color, for people, um, for first generation professionals, and um, people who are older, and uh, for individuals with disabilities. So the bias interrupters toolkits help um, both managers and then also organizations at an organizational level interrupt bias in hiring performance evaluations, assignments, and meetings. So definitely check out www.biasinterrupters.org. We also have developed, um, a long time ago, we developed a game called Gender Bias Bingo, which is still online at genderbiasbingo.com. We um, rolled it out at a conference <clears throat> for women in STEM and um, that you can go online and see if you win at the bingo, if you're reporting um, these classic patterns of gender bias. We have a lot of tools for anyone who's listening in academia um, for interrupting bias in academia. Um, that's at toolsforchangeinstem.org. And um, we also have um, tools for anyone who needs a pregnancy accommodation. For example, if you're pregnant and um, you can't stand up all day, you need a stool to sit down on, or those kinds of simple changes to your workplace environment to accommodate your pregnancy, to allow you 
to continue to work in a safe, in a way that's safe for you and safe for your uh, forthcoming baby. That that those tools are at pregnant at work, um, pregnantatwork.org, the website. Also, if you need uh, a pregnancy accommodation, provides a 50-state database of tools that your doctor can use to write you a pregnancy accommodation note that's going to trigger, trigger legal rights for you. So also check out Pregnant at Work. So I run an institute called the Center for Work-Life Law. We are now about 10 people and we've produced a lot of great tools and I hope people find them useful. Let us know. That's so great. I know as we've talked a lot about um, bias and, and what to do about it and, and all of that, it's so helpful to have just some tools that you can go to to give you some ideas. So thank you for that. So as we talk a, a little bit about maybe prove it again uh, biases, um, would you say that women engineers and women in STEM do have to prove themselves more than men do? Yeah, the data. The data says um, that would say yes. Uh, I mean, one one tool I forgot to mention is again the the What Works for Women at Workbook. What that is, and there's actually a book and a workbook, and they those provide in strategies that individual women can use. So I wanted to remind people that um, that's basically an evidence based advice book. Um, our data from the U.S. showed that um, about one-third of white men, white male engineers, felt they had to prove themselves more than their colleagues, but about two-thirds of women did and two-thirds of people of color do. So that's um, attitudinal data. Um, that's what women are reporting, if you ask them. That is also matched by, oh, by now, nearly 40 years of studies. Typically, they're matched resume studies where they give resumes that um, are identical except for one difference. And the best way to explain the matched resume studies, the Prove It Again studies, are the, one of the most famous I call the Greg Jamal study. And identical resumes... Jamal needed eight additional years of experience as compared to Greg in order to be seen as equally competent. So this prove it again pattern is, is very strong. It's been documented both by objective data in the lab and by, um, and it's been documented in the, uh, that people are seeing it in the workplace by our research. Um, so you prove it again um, is, is really a factor for uh, lots of different groups. As I mentioned, the group that is most likely to report having to prove themselves more than others around them are women of color. Very interesting. Um, one of the things that, you know, many of us are, are in large corporations, uh, I am, and Office politics are very complicated. Would you say that uh, it's they're more complicated for women engineers than they are for men? Um, they're definitely more complicated for women engineers um, than for men, not invariably, um, but often. And they're complicated in several different ways. Um, first of all, uh, 
when we when most people think of the brilliant engineer, a very specific image jumps into their mind. Um, it's um, basically of a kind of tall white guy, often, maybe in some environments, an Asian American gentleman. And it's someone who um, has uh, behaves in ways that our society under codes as masculine. So direct, assertive, um, ambitious. Uh, and so women have to behave in those masculine ways in order to be seen as co a competent engineer. But the only problem is that women are expected to be feminine. So women have to walk that tightrope between being doing what the men do, direct, sort of competitive, ambitious, but then also figuring out a way not to be disliked or seen as um, some of the things that women are called are difficult, prima donnas, who does she think she is? Um, and all of those stem from the fact that while the prescriptive stereotypes for men are direct, competitive, ambitious, the prescriptive stereotypes for women are uh, modest, self-effacing, and nice, a good team player. And so women, um, either they, uh, I mean, one of the ways this plays out is that women often are expected to do what my daughter and I call the office housework. That could be taking notes at a meeting, finding a time to meet, planning a party, picking up the cups, uh, being the peacemaker, or just doing whatever is really not the glamour work in any environment. Important work, but kind of back, back scenes work. And so women, office a good example of how office politics are more complicated often for women is that um, very often um, very junior people do undervalued work, you know, not the glamour work, and that's just called, you know, starting out. But what happens is that beyond a certain point, often men transition out of that office housework role very very seamlessly and are no longer asked to do it. Whereas women often find it really challenging to transition out of those less valued roles and to get their fair share of whatever is the glamour work in um, a given environment. And so women are placed in this awkward position of having to say, no, I won't do that, and being maybe seen as someone who's not a team player, um, or saying yes, and then having their career, career derailed because they're not doing highly valued work in the environment. And very often, men are even not asked to do the office housework, or if they are asked, they, what they often do is just do it very poorly and they're never asked again. So you might ask, well, why don't women just do it poorly? Well, women who do it poorly are often really faulted for being not team players or prima donna, whereas men who do it poorly offer, often suffer um, no consequences at all. So those are just some of the reasons that, uh, that office politics are more different for um, for men than for women in many, although it's important to stress, not all environments. I'll just briefly mention to others, often women who felt they've had to prove themselves more than their male colleagues, 
when they come back from maternity leave, all of a sudden find they have to prove themselves all over again um, at just a time when, of course, time is often at a premium. And so fatherhood does not trigger, uh, often trigger that reaction for male professionals, but motherhood very often triggers that reaction for female professionals. And then the, the, the last pattern of bias, the tug of war, really, really reflects the, the fact that um, in many, many environments in engineering, women reported to us that it was kind of a boys club and that they had to try to figure out how to make peace with the boys club. And women have very different strategies for making peace with the boys club. And sometimes those different strategies of assimilating uh, assimilating with the, the boys club or refusing to do so, sometimes that gives rise to conflict among women. So office politics are a lot more complicated often for women professionals than for men. And that's, um, that's what I recognized when I started reading this social science. And I also realized that, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was not, I was okay, but I was not really politically savvy. So I just, that's what led to what works for women at work. That's why I started asking every time I met a super savvy women, can I talk to you? Can I interview you? And I would just recite to her the findings of the social psychologists and say any of that sounded familiar. I was a little horrified to find that 96% of the women said yes, they had encountered one or more of these four basic patterns of bias. That, that uh, I, I absolutely believe that because, I mean, after a, a career of 30 years, you know, you, you do see these, these patterns of bias as, as you go through your work. And one of the things you mentioned was the boys club. And do you feel like that in order for, for women engineers to, to make it in engineering, that they have to join the boys club and be a part of that boys club? It really depends. Um, yeah, when um, one of the what we found in our survey of American engineers, well, first of all, there was an incredible pent up demand to talk about this. One out of every three surveys that we that were returned got comments, and sometimes the comments were like twelve hundred words long. And a lot of the women said, you know, I don't have any problem with other women because there's no other women in sight. My problem is with the boys club. Um, one of the things, uh, so in some environments, and this is the way, of course, it should be, uh, women don't have to deal with the boys club because the boys club is not the, where all the power lies. Um, so if you are in a boys club environment, you should recognize that there probably are other environments that are not dom dominated by the boys club. Um, but if you are in one of those environments, women often, there's a number of different strategies that women take. Um, sometimes they are just very matter of fact, of like I'm here to work, I'm not here for clubbing. Um, that's one strategy. Another strategy is to be kind of the boy's favorite girl. Um, uh, uh, who is, um, you know, is, is feminine in a lot of ways, but also gets on really, really well with the guys. Um, and there, a third strategy that women sometimes use is to kind of um, uh, present themselves as gender neutral. 
and just kind of blend in that way. So, I mean, again, how should workplaces be organized? They should be organized so that workplace isn't a boys club. You're not talking about clubbing and you, they shouldn't be organized around the expectations of one gender. They should be workplaces, who knew? <laughs> here, here, I couldn't have said it better. Um, so you you mentioned pent up demand, and and I think that's a good point. Um, the Me Too movement, you know, has obviously been a huge movement in countries and cultures around the world. From what you've seen, has Me Too had any uh, sort of impact on the engineering workplace? Um, I would imagine so. I haven't studied the impact of Me Too specifically on engineering workplaces, but I think Me Too has had impact very broadly on professional workplaces. It's had some very good effects and some less good effects. The good effects is that, especially from the point of view of um, someone my age, I'm over 60, I was just like, whoa, our heads are spinning. It's just like, you mean sexual harassment is actually not okay now? Uh, Because of course we thought sexual harassment was going to Um, go the way of all flesh after the Hill-Thomas hearings in 1991, and what changed was not a lot, I have to say. But there have been very sharp shifts in what is seen as acceptable behavior as a result of Me Too. It's really been a stunning example of how feminist activism has really changed the culture in a very short period. Now, sometimes this produces conflict between older women and younger women, where older women who have been in the workforce for decades and have always sort of understood at a molecular level that they would have to suck suck this and a lot else up um, in order to survive and thrive and be accepted by the boys club. Sometimes you have conflicts between those women and much younger women who feel absolutely entitled not to be sexually harassed. I know exactly what it means. And I think the important message is to the older women is that, the, yes, these younger, these younger women do feel entitled. And we as older women um, should take part of the credit for that. We were the pioneers. We were um, there when things were, when women's hold on these jobs was very fragile. And we created a lot more room for the younger women to feel entitled in. That I see as one of my chief life accomplishments. The other kind of dark side of Me Too is that we have persistent reports that some men are using it as an excuse not to mentor women, not to go out to lunch with women, some even not even to take a room alone in a meeting with a woman. And I think it's really important for everybody listening to this podcast to understand that men are perfectly entitled never to meet alone on it for a business meeting with a woman, so long as they never meet alone for a business meeting with a man. Treating men uh, and women differently is um, sex discrimination, illegal under federal law. And it's important to recognize that um, that norms have changed, but that's not an excuse for men refusing to have anything to do with women in the workplace and to work with them as colleagues. Really good. Thank you. Um, 
So your We 19 Mega Sex session uh, also focuses on navigating gender bias preferences. Um, When's your event and what can our attendees hope to learn from that session that they may maybe haven't already heard during this podcast? Well, it's Friday, November 8th from 1230 to 145. And what they can learn, what they can hope to learn is a lot more strategies for navigating through gender bias. I have only scratched the surface because what I did when I talked to all these savvy women is I got great ideas, for example, of how to unload the office housework in a way that's not going to come back to bite you, how you can navigate this tightrope successfully. Um, It's called gender judo, how you can handle motherhood in a way that is going to maximize the time you have both for your work and your family and minimize the amount of nonsense that you have to put up with from um, people. So uh, there are a lot of very, there there are a lot of strategies that women have used very successfully. Um, You know, again, the real message of my research, and I studied how subtle bias plays out now for well over a decade, closer to two, is that women can absolutely survive and thrive um, as engineers in today's workplaces. Unfortunately, they often have to be twice as politically savvy as men, but no problem. I just gather all of that savvy and put it in a book so that women could read the book rather than having to read, as I did, hundreds and hundreds of studies to kind of pull this together. Well, we certainly appreciate that. And I'm super excited to go to the session at conference. It sounds very interesting and some some great strategies that we all need. Um, Before I let you go, is there any uh, advice or words of wisdom that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Um, I think just a couple things. First of all, there are um, many women engineers who don't meet these patterns. And most women engineers don't meet all of them. And one of the things that what works for women at work does is helps you, takes you through a a thought process if you're having challenges at work to figure out um, when, when you should leave your employer and when you should not leave, but, um, but invest your energy in just solving this problem using various strategies that are wide, you know, that, that you can now find out in the book. So um, I think it's really important to recognize that there are workplaces without any of this nonsense. You just have to go out and find them. And even if you do meet up with some nonsense and feel like you really don't see anything around that's better, um, there are ways that you can absolutely survive and thrive. And what we have tried to do is put that political, political savvy in a bottle Um, so, and then share it widely. So we hope you come to the session and we hope you find it useful. Fantastic. Well, Joan, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. The research uh, and work that you're doing is so important. And on behalf of all of our SWE members, I'd like to say thank you for continuing to shed light on and bring change to the ongoing issue of bias patterns. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. As a reminder, it's not too late to register for We19 in Anaheim, California. To join your Sweesters at the world's largest conference for women engineers, head to we19.swe.org today. I'm Cindy Hoover, and for all of us at SWE, thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud. If you have not already made plans to be part of the largest gathering of women engineers in the world, visit our We19 conference site at we19.swe.org. Information on housing, registration, keynote speakers, and more is now available. See you there.